What is Christian nationalism? Is it this dangerous fascist movement? Is it a push for theocracy? Or is it just Christians exercising their faith as they try to influence policy and culture, just like everyone else with a worldview does? We are going to discuss and kind of debate this a little bit with our friend James Lindsay. He is an atheist, but he pushes back a lot against uh, critical theory, critical race theory, queer theory. And so we agree on a ton, but we also disagree fundamentally on where right and wrong and therefore on where the basis of law comes from. So a really, really interesting conversation. I learned a lot from it. I think that you will too. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Good Ranchers. Go to GoodRanchers.com. Use code Allie for American meat delivered right to your front door. That's GoodRanchers.com. Alley. James, thanks so much for joining us again. How are you doing? I am doing better, so I'm good. Thank you. Good. Um, okay, we've got a lot to cover. People know last week you were supposed to be on. We had technical difficulties. Now you're back. Everything is good to go. This will probably be a two-part thing because our conversations are typically lengthier. Um, before we get into all the topics that I want to talk about with everything going on in the news, I want to discuss something that I've observed on your Twitter feed for, I don't know if it's the past few months or past few weeks, but you seem to be, and you just clarify where you need to clarify. My impression is that you are in greater conflict with like Christian conservative Twitter than you have been previously. There seems to be like a lot of back and forth and arguments between you and Christian conservatives that you probably agree with in a lot of ways, but there seems to be some, I don't know, dissent there. Yeah, there's one issue actually. So the nitpick, I honestly don't think I'm arguing with Christians. I'm arguing with people who think they're Christians, uh, but that's a very Christian thing to say, which I can't claim. So um I'm arguing with people who are in favor of the Christian nationalism movement. I don't think that the Christian nationalist movement is a good idea. Uh, I have absolutely no problem with Christians, believing Christians. In fact, I think that preventing the Christian nationalist move is part of protecting uh, Christians' rights and freedoms to believe according to their pursuit and understanding of Scripture that they work out with their pastors. So like Stephen Wolf, William Wolf, those are two examples of people those who advocate. Two, yeah. For Christian yeah, I just released a podcast about them. Okay. So the, um, I called it the two wolves of Christian nationalism. Yeah, okay. Their names are kind of a funny situation, I guess. Kind of a funny – they're not related as far as I know. Uh, it's kind of funny that their last names are both wolf. Okay. But, uh, yeah. And and tell me I, – I mean I, you're probably about to do this anyway, but how would you define and maybe all three of you define Christian nationalism and what's your issue? Well, that's the problem is that if actually if you follow both Stephen and William, and this is the point of my podcast that I did about or part of the point of my podcast about Christian nationalism, uh, there's not one definition. And there are, in fact, multiple definitions. And there are people that are kind of arguing within this Christian conservative space that are pointing out that this is kind of strategically advantageous because it allows for the so-called Mott and Bailey argumentation strategy, which is that there are more kind of aggressive or activist views. And I think Stephen Wolf's having read a good part of his book, The Case for Christian Nationalism, the book's 475 pages long, and I've got things to do that involve communism and not reading that. So I didn't finish it, but I've read a good part of it. He's got a much more aggressive uh, kind of activist position about what Christian nationalism means. Williams is actually um, a bit softer, uh, and that gives the ability to play between the two. You can say, you know, you can push for this idea of Christian nationalism, and then are you talking about, say, the view of of somebody like Stephen? Are you talking about the view of somebody like William? Are you talking about the view of some of the, you know, pastors and things that we have friends with? Uh, I know we're both friends with who have a much more kind of soft idea where it's, well, we're going to bring back Christian values throughout the nation and think of ourselves as a Christian nation. So there are a multitude of definitions and there are people, and I feel like Stephen Wolf could be named in this regard and William Wolf can be named in this regard, who are very happy to move around between definitions and mean different things at different times, which is obviously not just something that we associate with the woke. It's something that a philosopher named Nicholas Shackle in 2005 
defined as the woke's defining characteristic. He called it in a paper. Uh, he called he defined the Mott and Bailey strategy in a paper in 2005 that he titled um, "On the Vacuity of Postmodernist Methodology." And it's the idea that words don't have stable, clear meanings and people go back and forth between them. So if we read Stephen Wolf's book, and I have done a fair amount of this, and you talk mm-hmm. to a lot of people who say that they believe in Christian nationalism, they say they don't recognize what is being portrayed there. Like that we're going to have a Christian prince who is going to be the highest political office in the land that's going to rule over everything as the avatar of Christ on earth. That's in the book. I don't think most Christians in the United States agree with that idea. I think they actually want religious liberty. Um so I'm not sure what it means. And that's yeah. a huge part of the problem. OK, I haven't read Stephen Wolf's book. From my understanding, there are, as you said, different definitions that people use when it's kind of lobbed by the left or people who consider themselves maybe progressive Christians. Really, like they might call me a Christian nationalist. They might say, oh, that's Christian nationalism simply for holding mainstream conservative Christian views. Like I am against abortion. I am for these abortion regulations. I am against drag queen story hour. I am also for, although I understand this is debated and things like that, I am for the traditional definition of marriage that was enshrined in law for hundreds of years. But I do not believe in a theocracy because I don't believe that's what Christians are called to. I don't believe in, you know, forcing people to abide by the same biblical tenets that Christians abide by because we just don't see that model in the life of Christ and in the New Testament. And so I think that there is, there's a shifting definition there, especially when it's coming from the left to kind of use as a pejorative basically believing that Christians should be the only ones that should check our beliefs at the voting booth, that we should not allow our faith to inform what we think about politics or culture. And I just think that's impossible. Yes, my faith is going to inform how I vote. That doesn't mean that I believe in forcing everyone to abide by my beliefs. But of course, I am going to submit to the belief that God created the heavens and the earth and therefore his ways are better. So I would have never called that Christian nationalism. I think up until now, it would have just been, you have a worldview. Everyone has a worldview. Everyone votes in accordance with their values. Progressive atheists vote in accordance with their values. They wouldn't call it worship. They might not even call it a worldview, but it is voting in accordance with their values. So like, try help me understand, is what I am talking about dangerous Christian nationalism, Christian simply doing what I think everyone does, voting in accordance to what we believe is good and right and true? No. And as a matter of fact, I think that you should be doing that. I think that I actually think that, frankly, that the pulpit should be getting more political right now. Um, And, you know, I've talked about this publicly before. You know, I get to very controversially, I get to go speak at the pastor's conference for Turning Point USA. I saw that, James. I saw that. And I do have to say, I have my badge over here. I did think it was interesting. I was like, obviously, you have so much to tell pastors. And that's why I have you on the show. I want people, I want Christians to hear from you. I will say, I like, I was a little surprised that you were speaking at this conference, if I'm honest. Well, I spoke at it last year too. So yeah. <clears throat> I'm great friends with Charlie. I'm great friends with Rob McCoy. Um, they respect what I have to offer to the conversation. They know that they can trust me not to come in and try to step on people's theology or tell them how they should interpret the Bible. I never do that yeah. uh, or very little. I only do that kind of to shoot back when I see somebody being kind of a snot on on social media or whatever. Um, because I did bother to read the Bible. I did bother to try to understand, you know, something of Christian theology before I started opening my mouth about it. But no, what you're you're characterizing is in fact the opposite of what Stephen Wolf has characterized. Stephen Wolf has said quite openly in podcasts, for example, that he the atheism will be stomped out. It, it, it will not exist under his view of what the country is supposed to look like. And so that's a little bit um, strident. And I kind of wonder when when this kind of thing comes up, uh, you know, well, OK, so I'm, I guess, technically agnostic, not atheist, really, but I don't believe in God. Which church are you going to force me to go to and which government agency are you going to set up to force me to go to church? I I don't want that. I don't want a country where we have a government agency which determines which churches are legitimate and which ones aren't. Even if it's not about me personally forcing me to go to church, do Mormons count? 
What about these woke churches? Are they Christian? Are they going to get stamped out or do they have their religious freedom? Now, it's uncomfortable to say that we should protect the freedom of these woke churches, but this is a country built off of religious freedom. So what I when we talk about the left and the way that they use the word Christian nationalism, and then we see these kinds of things that are being said that are, are much more strident, it's to me very clear that you know, you've got this label stuck on you by the left. We know that the left has cultural hegemony in this country. Mm-hmm. In fact, they have the Department of Justice basically yeah. under their 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 mm-hmm. umbrella. And we know that the Department of Justice and the FBI are extremely concerned with this so-called rise of white nationalist extremism and all of this nonsense, which they are tying to so-called Christian nationalist extremism. And so people like you are going to get labeled under these kind of more extreme views when they're playing this multi-definition game. And I think that the left has set a trap to get people – to get conservative Christians to feel desperate enough to kind of say, you know what? I woke up yesterday finally – I'm angry and I'm going to put my foot down and assert myself and we're just going to do it this way. And they think that they can reclaim to, to be as generous to them as possible. They think they can reclaim this term. Even if we step away from the idea of Stephen's very kind of strident Christian nationalism, look at Williams kind of more soft form that he's kind of pushing a little more vague and ambiguous form where we well, no, we're going to use Christianity to inform the laws. We're going to use Christianity to inform politicians. This is the kind of thing that he's saying. We're going to have a seat at the table. Again, I ask, which government commission are you going to set up to decide which faiths get to come in and inform? Do the Mormons get to come in and inform? You know, do the woke Mormons versus the kind of more conservative Mormons, which ones are allowed at the table, which ones aren't? Does the Presbyterian church that has the drag queen preaching from the pulpit, are they allowed to come? Why or why not? Which government agency are you setting up to decide which faith is legitimate and which faith isn't? And what do you do with people who aren't? These are our questions. But what I feel like is that even these people that have this kind of vaguer, softer definition of what Christian nationalism might represent, even to the point where it's just what you were describing for yourself, um, I feel like the the problem is that the, the most hardcore pressing definition is going to get stuck on all of them. And we're going to see something very much like January 6th all over again. And there's going to be this kind of wide dragnet for Christians who have publicly admitted, yeah, I'm a Christian nationalist. And they're all going to get labeled as extremists by an angry Department of Justice after some kind of an event. Maybe it's something like Charlottesville again. Maybe it's something like J6 again. Then all of a sudden there's this, we need to fix the Christian nationalist extremist, white nationalist extremist, because they're going to get mixed together. And Stephen's not helping that. He had his very controversial tweet the other day where he said, you know, that whatever he meant by it, he said that the white evangelical mm-hmm. block is the only thing that can save yeah. America. This doesn't help the he case. Said, he I said will tell the you, only the sole or the lone bulwark against moral insanity in America. And just to clarify that, I actually responded yeah, to that right, last night right. because I saw a lot of people, a lot of conservative Christians who like you know, very conservative Christians, anti-woke for sure, disagreeing with him and saying, you know, this is racist. Of course, this is not necessarily true. And I haven't read his book. And so just looking at that tweet alone, I took it to mean what we see statistically, that if you look at every Pew Research poll that breaks political, cultural, moral views down by subgenres of Christians or by religions, the white evangelical block, of course, it doesn't have one for black evangelicals, but the white evangelical block is the most conservative on every issue, marriage, gender, abortion, guns, immigration. So I took his tweet to mean that a lot of people took his tweet to mean just like racism, um, we're back to the same problem. Yeah, I didn't right? see it that way. But I, I frankly, I, I don't know Stephen very well. Um, I read his most of his yeah, book. I've read yeah. many reviews of his book. I've watched his behavior online, and this is the most important. I think he knows what he's doing. I think he knows that the statement was ambiguous. I think he knows that actually somebody asked, will you explain it? And he put a funny, you know, GIF image saying no. He won't explain himself. I think he knows exactly oh, what I he's doing. He and did he's playing on both himself. sides. Well, he might have later, but his initial reaction was that he refused to explain himself further. Uh, and so I think he knows what he's doing. I think he's playing in that ambiguity, that the same Martin Bailey ambiguity that we constantly see. And now Christians, conservative Christians in particular, are arguing and they're arguing across the race line. I know that Virgil Walker got upset about this, yeah, for example. Yeah, whom I very respect. Um, These are all people like the people pushing back against him. 
I totally respect them in every way. They're not like liberals pushing back against a conservative take. These are people who I totally align with theologically. So I just thought it, it, so it was see, an interesting conflict online. But So I see a guy that's sowing division when he's doing things like this. I think he knows what he's doing. Um, I see the same with William. He plays this kind of Mott and Bailey game all the time. Uh, and so I, I'm, I'm concerned about what the purposes that they have are. Maybe it's totally benign. Maybe they're just, you know, clumsy with how they phrase things. Maybe they're playing a game that they know what they're doing. Maybe they're trying to create a power grab. Maybe it's something else. But I do know that what's going to happen is that the left is going to seize upon every single one of these examples. This is already a term that the left is horrified by. That when I was before I got kind of more involved and started spending time with conservative Christians regularly, which has only been in the past, what, four years or so. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, when I first met, for example, Michael O'Fallon, I didn't know him. He called me, said, will you come to this conference? It turns out it was the G3 conference that year and talk about woke. And I was like, no, I don't know who you are. I don't know what this is. And yeah. I typed him into the search engine and a Media Matters article came up. And I was still left enough to think Media Matters might be something real. Has an authority. And, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it said that he's a Christian nationalist, even though Mike has spent years very studiously avoiding that label because he knew the trap that was being set and advising people to avoid that, avoid that label. So they labeled him a Christian nationalist. And in my brain, now I'm not right for this. I'm just saying this is what happened. As somebody in, you know, vaguely at the edge of no longer being left, you know, kind of emerging from that cocoon, low information, meet this guy or encounter with this guy. And I see the words Christian nationalist, my brain immediately switched and said white nationalist. And I remember calling my colleague, Peter Bogosian, because we were both invited together. And Peter's like, we have to go. We have to do this. And I was like, no, this dude's a white nationalist. This is like Nazi stuff. And so what I'm saying is, is that if that's where I was in, in, in 2019, how many thousands or millions probably of, of left-leaning Americans are going to see things like what Stephen's putting out on Twitter, playing this game, and they're going to associate that with this. And then they're going to, when the, yeah. when the Department of Justice decides to throw down the hammer, Guess what dragnet you're getting caught up in? All right, first sponsor for the day is, of course, Carly Jean Los Angeles. You guys know how much I absolutely love this company and all of their clothes. I'm wearing Carly Jean Los Angeles all of the time because it's so comfortable in every stage of life. And whether you're pregnant or your postpartum or your neither of those, their clothes just make you feel really good about your body. They make you feel beautiful. And that's exactly why Carly Jean started this company. She's an amazingly talented person. But what I love about her is that she shares the same values that you and I do. So this is a company that represents pro-life values, that represents Christian values. Also, another thing I love is that their entire basics line is made in the U.S., which you know is really important for me. They've got a wide range of sizes, so extra small to 3X for most styles, and it's affordable, especially if you use my code AllieBasic. So that's a new code, so make sure you listen up. It's AllieBasics. When you go to CarlyJeanLosAngeles.com, you save 25%, excluding final sale items. Shipping is always free for orders more than $100. Go to CarlyJeanLosAngeles.com. Use promo code AllieBasics. CarlyJeanLosAngeles.com, code AllieBasics. I think that you would probably agree that our primary motivation in arguing for anything, it's not what the reaction is going to be, but whether it is true, whether it is right. And I'm not agreeing with them or any of their methods or whatever, but if we are to take what they're saying at face value, if we are to be as generous as possible, maybe they're saying these things because they genuinely believe it's right and it's virtuous because, you know, I get called by people on the left divisive all the time. If I disagree with any mainstream narrative, if I disagree with President Biden, if I disagree with a false teacher presenting false theology, I get called divisive. Now, should I not do that because someone's going to call me racist? Someone's going to call me divisive? No, I'm still going to say those things because I believe they're true no matter what the response is. So from a more like charitable perspective, maybe they're just saying those things not thinking about the response, not even thinking about sowing division, but but just because they think they're true, the same way that you do. Well, I mean, I, I don't disagree with that. And I don't think that we should be that concerned with what the left is going to label us, but we're also in a war. So we need to be strategic. And 
they may be saying things that they genuine, genuinely believe for, and I, they probably are. Um, I encourage you when you get the time to read a 475 page book, you didn't have time yeah. to read you know, uh, Stephen's book. Uh, I encourage you to read it and see what you think of his theology and what you think of his, uh, his argument. Um, yeah. of course, like I said, Williams is very different. And then if we were to go to our friends like Tom Askell, who are very soft on this issue, uh, very gentle man, wonderful guy, you're going to find an even softer definition. Mm-hmm. But when we're playing around in these different definitions and we know how, we know how this game is played. We're not talking about what the left is going to call us. We're talking about what the Department of Justice is going to do in order to discredit a wide swath of the country or to intervene and start saying that the churches are some kind of a problem and use that as a pretext to start bringing government influence over the yeah. churches. Um, we have to play a, a smarter game than one where the entire basis for the argument is 10 different things that people that are involved in the argument are openly saying it's strategic to use this Mott and Bailey strategic equivocation between definitions. So it it's just a, a kind of it's almost a tangential point that it's a tra- it's definitely a trap the left is setting for for Christian conservatives to discredit them like the deplorables, but something that will actually stick instead of becoming a rallying cry that yeah. has a lot of effect. Um and in a stick in a way where we're talking, you know, legal definitions of domestic extremism, you know, what are we going to see? Are we going to see another stand down in the military where Christian conservatives get thrown out of the military for for domestic extremism or dishonorably discharged or whatever on the other side of, say, Charlottesville 2.0 because of these kinds of definitions? So if they want to forward this kind of idea about make an argument for Christian nationalism, the first thing that needs to happen is they need to sit down and they need to get it clear what they mean. I actually went to a conference. I sat in the audience and listened to Stephen Wolf talk about this. There was a panel. There were five guys on the panel. And I listened to them for, you know, an hour, hour and a half, whatever the panel lasted. And my impression was that the bun just ain't ready to come out of the oven. Like they they, they have not organized their thoughts in a way that's sufficient to push a mass movement in Christians uh, across the country. Because it is a very large, as you said, it is the largest kind of single voting block, except for maybe, you know, suburban wine moms. And so the bun isn't ready to come out of the oven. But I get the impression, looking at the way that they're playing this game and that they're not sitting down and trying to clarify these things, that the bun isn't meant to be ready to come out of the oven. Mm, I see what you're it's, saying. Th- there's this opportunity. It's the same opportunity the left does where, you know, they say, oh, or, you know, Christian nationalism is going to destroy our democracy. I can guarantee you that sentence is coming sooner or later, right? And then they mean something by Christian nationalism, but that's not the point because what the, the, the real – Tricky word there is democracy. Our democracy means something different to the left, right? And so they play in that space and you say, oh, you're against democracy if you don't go along with us. No, I'm against your democracy as a matter of fact, which means that the deplorables or the Christian nationalists or whoever yeah. else don't count yeah. for whatever reason as as people. Like Mao said, to have incorrect political opinions is like not having a soul. So you're not a person. So you don't actually have any political rights. And this is he explained that very clearly in 1957. Mm-hmm. I get very concerned about that. Uh, yeah. As a practical matter, but from a from a position of of uh, what's my take on the issue overall, it's very very clear that we don't just have disagreement between different voices. We have people who are espousing more than one position at the same time, depending on who's looking and and, and how much pressure is on them. Uh, and it's very unclear. Like Stephen, for example, was asked some very pointed questions in the Q and A at that conference, and he backed off from almost everything that I read in his book. He was very circumspect when all of a sudden he had to present his ideas out loud, but his book is very strident. And so what's going on there? He's espousing two different positions that don't necessarily line up with one another. Um, That's a concerning. Yeah. Put that's a concerning place to be. And the reason I think it's most concerning is that it sets up Christians to, to plant a flag into something that is not ready to have a flag planted in it. We don't, you don't know what you're actually standing up for. And that definition might change out from under you at any time. Yeah. Here's my, before we move on from this, um, I guess my question is, because I think you would agree, every law that exists speaks to a moral view. There is a definition of right and wrong from which we get laws. This idea that it's not good to murder, or not only that it's not good, but that it should actually be 
illegal, this idea that you have a right not to be assaulted, that you have a right not to get your property stolen from. These all come from somewhere. Now, I think the founders, some of them deists, some of them agnostic, some of them probably actually religious Christians, still thought, as in the tradition of England, as in the tradition of Western civilization, that as a general basis for our morality and our laws, we should look to the Bible, which I would say is different than a theocracy. It is simply acknowledging that every law speaks to a moral view, speaks to a belief in right and wrong, speaks to a belief in human rights. So is it quote-unquote Christian nationalism to say that I as a Christian, if I believe that God created all things. That means he defines all things. That means he believes, that's the cent- one of the central tenets of Christianity, Genesis 1.1. Then of course, I'm going to believe that the laws that we have should in general be based in a biblical morality. Now that is different than saying everyone must go to church. Everyone must read their Bible. You are not allowed to not believe in God. So like, what's the difference there between Christian nationalism and what I think is an inevitable conclusion or an inevitable product of Christianity or really any belief that believes in the supreme authority of a being, which is that morality then comes from that being, which means laws come from that morality. And so everything kind of does fall under your worldview. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I understand. We, I don't know why we, we parse would... that out. I mean, this is why, again, we have to be very clear on what we mean by Christian nationalism, because it's very obvious that some people will mean that this is going to be a Christian nation in a very kind of theocratic way. Other people will not mean that. Um, It also comes back to the question of, of, of how do we decide whose theology gets to inform the state? The answer that we actually have now, what it turns out is that while we do have a deep and long Judeo Christian value set informing the United States and the founders, were a mixture primarily of Christians and deists who are kind of working this out, uh, which is a point, by the way, that at that conference they equivocated upon. They actually tried to say that they all the founders who count were actually Christian. And somebody asked about Madison and Jefferson. And uh, the answer was, we don't have to live under what they called Virginia supremacy. That's Virginia supremacy. Jefferson and Madison aren't that important. They were fringe members is what was said. I mean, they wrote the Declaration of the Constitution. Say, uh, <laughs> They're yeah. a little not fringe. Yeah. And so what the, what the American legal tradition is based in, while it is informed by Judeo-Christian value sets underneath, it's actually based in English common law, which was also based in certain, you know, Judeo-Christian value mm-hmm. sets as well. Mm-hmm. So it's a tradition, a long tradition of liberty that actually begins with religious liberty. And so we start when we start talking about this is a Christian nation because its laws are informed off of a biblical morality, we have to be very, very cautious about what we mean by that. When you say informed by, you know, what does that mean? Then the in the broadly liberal sec, or you know, post-enlightenment secular tradition, the idea is that yeah, you can inform your laws based off of um say the Bible, but you have to make a, a an argument that's not rooted not rooted purely in a sectarian interpretation in order to convince people who maybe don't have that particular interpretation. And what we've actually kind of chosen is a natural rights theory rooted in English common law as the pathway that that's going to happen. So the Bible can inform people and they can come and it, Christians, of course, have, I mean, there's, there's the National Prayer Breakfast, there's there are, you know, religious advisors. We had Paula White advo- advising uh, President huh. Trump, for example. Um, and whatever you think of her theology is irrelevant. The, the, the character exists. This, this position exists. This is actually a thing that happens. The question has to become, how does that apply to every American? And mm-hmm. what other basis for the law other than merely a religious tradition? Because even among Christians, there are massive disputes in theological yeah. interpretation. And so does Stephen Wolf get to come in and say, well, the Bible clearly says because of some interpretation, and this is his argument, because of some impre- some interpretation of the prelapsarian state preceding the fall in the Garden of Eden about how Adam and Eve were organizing what was like kind of a proto-family structure uh, that he, he he makes the argument that had the fall never occurred, what would have happened is that there would have been nations forming anyway within the garden and that those nations yeah. as peoples in the garden would have um, 
would have had a biblical morality because obviously they're in a pre-fallen state, so they would have to have a you know Genesis-driven biblical morality, <clears throat> whatever God's law was as it was dictated in the garden. And so it's perfectly reasonable and natural to extend that and say that, well, whatever interpretation, I guess, that Stephen Wolf has is going to inform the government. And I start to wonder how we're going to pick and choose and how we're going to enforce that. Because the, the second we switch from... Yeah, we have a kind of cultural underpinning of Judeo-Christian values, and those those inform how we select our laws, and they inform how we behave culturally and the kind of cultural mores, because there's legal enforcement and there's cultural enforcement of, of values and norms and so on. Yeah. And we slip into all of a sudden a position now where, no, this is what the state says and everybody has to do this because of, you know, whatever particular confession decided that it has enough power to plant its flag in the federal government or the state government or a local government, uh, we've now slipped into a completely different um, entity, uh, political entity, literally something that's like at least light theocracy, which requires creating government institutions that decide which faiths are valid and which aren't. And if that's what you mean by a Christian nation, I mean, what is it? Like, is it, is, a, is it a Presbyterian nation? Is it a, you know, whichever, I get confused about these details, as you know, I'm not, this is just a little bit outside of my ken, but, you know, is it the, like the 1689 confessional nation? Which one is it? And if that's yeah. the wrong year, just bear with me. It's it doesn't, doesn't matter. Yeah. The, this is, those are two different things. And until the Christians who want to push for something as bold and obviously dangerous, given what the DOJ, et cetera, would think before they want to push kind of blindly into the space of, oh, we need a Christian nation. They'd better start sorting these things out and being very clear so that they're not misleading. This is why so often I end up having these conversations with Christians that are, you know, much more theologically grounded than I am. And I talk to them and they read Stephen Wolf's book or William Wolf's articles and they come back to me and they say something about like Jeremiah 23. <laughs> and they immediately go to the like false teachers documents. Yeah. And it's like, oh, goodness, you know. Yeah. And so um, without that clarity of meaning, you should not be pushing a movement. And if you're deliberately, as I think we, we, we aren't seeing debates between William Wolf and Stephen Wolf about what it should mean. We see both of them using the term content that they don't mean the same thing and content that it doesn't matter because it's all kind of moving in the same direction. What you will see invariably in those situations is that the most intolerant will seize the, the direction of the movement in the end and drive it into whatever direction it's going to go. Um, and frankly, in this case, a lot of what's driving the so-called Christian nationalist movement, where we get back to the brass tacks, is a integralist movement, which is a Catholic program that's been made inc- ecumenical. So you have a Roman Catholic integralist movement. Integralism is to reintegrate the church and the state into a single entity. Um, it was developed by one of the popes, uh, in the, I think in the 1800s. It was a disaster in South America every time it was tried. It turns out liberation theology was, was applied on the left from an integralist mm-hmm. standpoint. So it can be a lot of different things. It isn't necessarily this right-wing phenomenon. It, it, it can it can occupy a lot of positions, but there are also this kind of new ecumenical movement. We're all going to pretend that Catholics and Protestants and this Protestant and that Protestant are all kind of on the same the team. Same. Yeah. And what we're going to do is integrate that into the state kind of very formally and officially. And that's what's actually – if you get to where the money's coming from, that's what's actually driving the movement. And so I wonder – because I've talked to some of these yeah. Catholic integralist guys, and they're like, we're going to have an inquisition. We're going to force convert people to Catholicism. I wonder, honestly, if Protestants are getting used by these people. I know. I'm like, okay, are, so when you talk about that person who I probably agree with on a lot of things, I'm like, are you talking about me too? Like, are you going to try uh, to convert me to Catholicism? Um, even I told though, them that they were going to yeah. bend my knee, and I told them I was going to bend their knee backwards. So, like, <laughs> um, I don't, I'm not down with that. Yeah. That's not – that's not a country I want to live in. And so right. I don't know. I mean, sometimes they say yes, and sometimes they say yeah. very much like what you see in in kind of radical Islam, which, by the way, is sometimes categorized as an integralist movement as well. You see them say, you know, no, there's going to be people who are of the book, more yeah. or less. You're close enough, so we'll tolerate you. So, again, that depends. Who's in power? Yeah. You know, are we talking about something like Adrian Vermeule's Common Good Christianity which means somebody gets to define what the common good looks like, which means there's going to be a stakeholder council that gets it. This is the same thing that, that Klaus yeah. Schwab is doing. Well, I mean, just or are like we talking about else. something? 
Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. And then I'll no, uh, yeah. Or are we talking about something, you know, much more literally we need an inquisition and we're going to force convert people. Yeah. You know, maybe they're going to go around and find the Jews by feeding them delicious pork and, and things like that and force them to become Catholics. Um, which is what, you know, the Spanish Inquisition yeah. actually did. That's why they have such delicious prosciutto and, and you know, salchichon and so on in Spain. Um, who could refuse such a gift? Okay, we absolutely love good ranchers in our home. Actually, can I just tell you something really sad that just happened? I wasn't planning on talking about this, but it seems like a, a good moment. So I am actually really sad because we had a whole freezer full of meat. And while we were out of town, our freezer just stopped working. Our freezer just stopped working. And so all of our good ranchers meat got ruined because our deep freezer that is relatively new and has always worked, stopped working. And it was really tragic. And you know why it was so tragic? Because we rely on Good Ranchers so much in our home. I mean, we use it every night. And it's also just a sense of security, knowing that if you can't get the meat that you need, the food that you need at the grocery store, at least you have that. Never fear. We're getting our new order of Good Ranchers. It'll be all good. But I realized while I was grocery shopping how amazing it is not to have to worry about getting steak, getting beef, getting chicken, getting seafood at the grocery store and wondering where it comes from and what the quality is. I don't have to worry about any of that with Good Ranchers. It shows up at our front door. It's on dry ice. I know it's American meat. I know it's high quality. So you can have that peace of mind too and that security by getting Good, uh, good Ranchers. If you subscribe, you get free bacon for a year. That's amazing. That's a really good deal. Plus, if you use my code Ali at checkout, you get $20 off, $20 off your order. So that's $20 off plus that free bacon for a year. If you go ahead and subscribe, get that box of meat to your front door every month. Love Good Ranchers. Go to GoodRanchers.com. Use code Ali at checkout. That's GoodRanchers.com. Code Ali. So I think that, and we can't go through all of this. We got to close this portion of the conversation out because we've got so many other things to talk about. But if you look yeah. at the tradition of the reformers and what they believed about governance and what they believed about morality is that, yes, there were some, I would call them fringe reformers who believed in maybe that more theocratic form of Christian nationalism. But I think that I am from the tradition of Augustine, who obviously wasn't a reformer, but Augustine and then Calvin, who was a reformer, who said, he said things like this, how malicious and hateful toward public welfare would a man be who is offended by such diversity? And by that, he means people who have different beliefs and different backgrounds, which he believed is perfectly adapted to maintain the observance of God's law for the statement of some that the law of God given through Moses is dishonored when it is abrogated and new laws preferred to it is utterly vain. And then he says, it is a fact that the law of God, which we call the moral law, is nothing else than a testimony of natural law and of that conscience which God has engraved on the minds of men. And he believed even unbelievers can participate in a society like this. Even unbelievers can rule a society like this. Actually, we see that in Romans 13. Paul says, look, God has instituted these governments for your good to punish the wrongdoer and to reward the one who does right, not talking about whether or not that leader is Christian. Um, and so I know that this is kind of confusing language just because of the era that it that it comes out of, and I don't necessarily expect you to agree with it. But I think that that is the kind of traditional Christian thought, that any anything that is moral, anything that is right, is going to be of God ultimately. And we believe that that is kind of naturally intrinsic in moral men, if that makes sense. And so that is different than theocracy. That is simply saying, of course, Christians believe in a Christian morality, and we are going to vote in accordance with that. But we also believe that that can be debated. We also believe that that can adapt to a pluralistic society. It just depends on to what degree. So that's kind of where the debate is, I think. And I think you're right. That point that the bun is not ready to come out of the oven with people saying, yay, Christian nationalism, I don't think that they always know exactly what they even mean. So, okay, good discussion on that. Uh, let's talk, okay, since we're talking about disagreements, before we get into the rest of it, I do want to, okay, so you broke, you broke my rule, which is okay. My rule is that 
Friends don't disagree, quote, tweet friends. That's that's my rule. Um, and so if I disagree with a friend on Twitter, then I will like message them or I'll text them or something like that. But that's okay. You disagreed. I said about the Nashville shooting, it's an anti-Christian terrorist attack motivated by a pervasive, unabashed, top-down anti-Christian sentiment, which I believe is part of it. And then you said, uh-oh. And then you posted this picture, which we can put up on YouTube. I don't know if we have it right now. Um, and so basically, I just think that you disagreed with me saying that. You said, don't do a Christian reaction, and it's not a well-reasoned mm -hmm. argument. So uh, break that down a little bit. Why am I wrong? Oh, so <clears throat> actually, I don't think you're wrong. Uh, so I'm glad you asked me about it. I actually am not Again, you should speak. We talked about this before. You should speak truth the way that you see it. And I don't think that you're wrong. I do think there's a strong anti-Christian sentiment. I do think that, say, for example, the woke and the trans movement in particular have a massive axe to grind against Christianity. They blame so much for Christianity. They're, in fact, kind of an anti-Christianity, like an upside down or inverted mm -hmm. Christianity mm -hmm. um, in that they're a Gnostic hermetic kind of uh, – spin-off or, you know, perversion of them. And we can thank Marx for that mostly, kind of historically speaking. But I'm very worried, and it kind of ties into the Christian nationalist thing, that what we're going to see is a dissension into greater identity politics, that this mm. is Christians against trans, as opposed to this is a normal, healthy society that's under assault by what are very obviously radical activists. So what I'm concerned, the uh-oh was about are Christians going to get baited into this idea of a kind of standpoint-driven identity war? Because I don't think identity wars are going to be behoove anybody. I think that the actual fight, it, it can be very Harry Potter-ish, is that it's normal people against people that are, are somehow mentally deranged um, by critical theory. I think critical theory actually is designed to mentally derange people, is to create psychopathologies and, and entitled narcissism and vulnerable narcissism. And these people are not particularly well. If Harry Potter I brought up because it is a morality tale of the normal kid, the normal person, his capacity for love being ultimately what allows him to win in the end. Sorry, spoiler, that Harry wins uh, <laughs> over the seven books against Voldemort, who's the kind of quintessential psychopath, um, who's lost his ability for empathy, who's lost his ability for love, who's lost his perspective, his you know tagline is there is no good or evil, there's only power and those too weak to seek it. And I think that critical theories derange people into seeking and believing that the world only operates in terms of power, power that they're being unjustly excluded from. So the uh-oh is actually that I hope that we stay broader minded and we don't start holding ourselves up or siloing ourselves into, oh, this is a war, Christians versus this. These people are waging war on the entirety of civilization, frankly, of civilization. And Christians are an a very important part of that, uh, an important part of the American civilization, Western civilization in particular. Uh, I mean, like we already said, I completely agree that our traditions are, are largely Judeo-Christian in, in their orientation, their faith and reason working together, which is kind of the magic sauce of the West. And what they do is they box out this kind of entitled narcissistic Gnosticism. And so I'm, I didn't disagree with the analysis. I am concerned – I didn't know you had this rule, by the way. I was I'm concerned uh, that there will be a new identitarian movement that's mm -hmm. a very us against them reaction because the way that the the left operates operationally, and I talked to Vivek Ramaswamy about this recently, is that what a lot of conservatives don't understand is that the left is very operational. They are actually I don't think they're terribly smart. We shouldn't underestimate our our enemies. But they are actually very strategic. They're very, very tactical. I mean, they can't be that brilliant because they can't figure out what a woman is. But they're very tactical, very strategic. And there's uh, a principle that they have in their, their activist manual, which is called Beautiful Trouble. It's derived from Saul Alinsky's uh, work. It's kind of an updated version. It's online. It's at beautifultrouble.org. I encourage people to go look at it. There are thousands of tactics and principles and so, maybe hundreds, not thousands. There are a lot of tactics and principles and examples of how to do leftist activism. And one of their core principles is your real action is your target's reaction. So if you can get Christians to hole up and say to try to silo off a part of society and then to argue in terms of Christianity versus trans, instead of that this is an assault on sanity itself, 
which is Christian to bring up is the salt on the logos, uh, which is, you know, in John one, that's Christ. And so it is an assault on mm-hmm. Christianity, but it's also an assault on sanity itself. If you get people to silo up and start to argue, this is Christian identity versus trans identity, <clears throat> then they get to create a dynamic that's actually been very fruitful for them. Like we talked about before, the shift in cultural hegemony is strongly on their side. So you are, you should be making these statements very clearly, but I think it's actually important, or I guess not but, and I think it's very important because I don't want to cancel out that you should be saying the things that you truly see and believe. Um, And it is very important to be very clear that this is much broader than just a war on Christians in particular, because we don't want people to start siloing off and... um, fragmenting society further so i don't actually disagree with you this was a hate crime targeting christians on purpose because they're christian okay let me tell y'all about quinn's goat soap i've told y'all about them a few times i just love the story of how this company started so several years ago quinn decided that for his ninth birthday he wanted goats. Why did he want goats? Because he's a very entrepreneurial kid and he saw that you can make a lot of money making goat soap or goat milk or goat cheese. And so he wanted to try his hand at it. So he literally started when he was young, this family business of uh, milking goats and then using that to make different kinds of goat products. And now they make this amazing goat soap as a family. They make shampoo, they make conditioner, and it's incredible. It smells so good. It leaves your skin feeling so soft and you're supporting a family and a young kid, an industrious young kid that shares the same values that you and I do. So I think this would make a great gift, like a fun wedding gift if you got a few different things or a shower gift or something like that. And also just fun for your home. They've got different kind of uh, scents for the different seasons of the year, which I just love. It's a great company and really a high quality product. Go to qpgoatsoap.com. Use code Allie for 10% off. QPGoatsoap.com, code Allie. And that's the thing. This specific instance did seem to be targeting a Christian school. And we have the manifesto out there that for some reason they are just not able to reveal to us, presumably mm-hmm. because it. I, I'm guessing that it says, look, this school didn't affirm me. This school oppressed me with the gender binary. And so I wanted to exact revenge against them, which would be, I I mean, I don't really like the term hate crime because anytime you go murder a bunch of children, it's hateful. And so whatever the motivation is, but but it's a targeted crime. Specifically anti-Christian. I agree with you in one sense that the trans movement will label everyone on the wrong side of history, no matter what their background is, even if they consider themselves a left-wing feminist, but they are not for this idea that you can just become the opposite sex via declaration. And so it is broader, but I guess my argument would be Like you say, it's normal people versus insane people, which really great point. I do believe that critical theory causes psychopathy and just instability. But like, what is our definition of normal? Where do we get the baseline of normal? Again, as a Christian, like I believe that what is normal, or I shouldn't even say normal, what is good is just like eternity, as Ecclesiastes says, like is written on the human heart. There is this innate sense of right and wrong. There's actually objectively a definition of perverting what is normal. And you and I, even though we're not Christians, we agree on that. But my perspective would be, even though you're not a Christian, and even though you don't believe this, I would say that that's of what you are calling normal, I would call goodness that has been written on your heart and that you have been given the wisdom to see. And so ultimately, like I do believe it is light versus dark. Ultimately, I do believe it is God's truth versus a lie, even if it's not necessarily Christians versus non-Christians. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I, that's just the key. Is The only reason I said, uh-oh, which wasn't actually, you know, it's fine. I'm not, I'm not offended. <laughs> it's just that, that I do have this concern that the goal of the left is to fragment the population so that people have a harder time getting along. So you say, you know, it's a target on Christians and Christians start saying this is about Christian Christianity, which isn't totally wrong. And then a bunch of other people who might have been, you know, 
colleagues with you or co-belligerents with you get alienated. And so now what happens is you start to have a, is this Christians or is it something else argument instead of being able to focus on the fact that we have deranged people doing violence against our society and against our, our people. And in particular, against Christians who obviously just got completely washed out of the story. I'm sure we'll talk about these Tennessee three here before long um, in terms of how they washed out of the story. But I mean, there is a very real, uh, when I said this is an anti-Christian movement, and I mean that in the kind of technical sense, not like a just being against Christianity, meaning the trans queer theory movement. It's also um, like the inverse of Christianity. I mean, when I say anti, I mean like, perverted or inverted because what it is trans transition is a process of death and rebirth you know kind of like with yeah. with christians when they when, when they profess or they become, become a new they creation. baptized or whatever yeah you are reborn it is born the old has born. passed Again, the new right? has come yeah that's right well this is the same for them but they have a completely different religious ritual, a completely different outlook about what they're dying and being reborn into. And I'll just I think I've said this with you before, but this is actually deeply rooted in their literature. If you go back and read not even trans people, but certainly the queer and trans literature, it's all over in there. That it's kind of a death and rebirth process. But if you go back and read, say, Paulo Ferreri, who's writing about education, he says that the process of education has to be and becoming an educator or becoming a true student has to be a process of death to the old world and a rebirth into the new mm. on the side of the oppressed. And so there is a very deeply religious element here that is taking the idea of Christian uh, renewal and turning it into something that's actually – uh, if, if I might get religiously technical with you, it's actually a hermetic idea. The goal is to actually, in the first step, realize that you have this own this power over yourself, that you are, in fact, your your own deity. And so then what you do is you become your own begetter. You you self you get to the stage where you're self begetting. This is what trans is. They are literally saying, I know how I was meant to be. Despite what body I was born into, despite what the doctor assigned a sex to it, despite how society had all these um, social constructions of what it meant to be a boy or a girl impressed upon me, I actually know the secret truth about myself. That's Gnosticism. It's salvific self-knowledge, the secret knowledge, hidden knowledge, and I can undergo this process to beget myself into what I was always meant to be. And so the Hermetic faith has a trinity. And it's not Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It is, in fact, the undifferentiated all, that's the Father position, and then it's, uh, which is the unbegotten God, and then there is the, the self-begotten God, which is the mind of God. So in place of Christ, there is the, the, the mind of God. And then the third position is man. And so the goal is to first remember that you are, in fact, God, and then you are to disavow yourself of your own body, which has mm -hmm. fallen and corrupted, so that yeah. you can become a self-begetting entity. In other words, you are meant to realize that you are God and then become your own Christ. So the trans thing is, and this is what this young woman coming to this school is ultimately rebelling against, is a different path that denies that this is possible. For her, salvation comes from realizing who she truly is and then begetting herself as she was always meant to be. And the Christian story says, no, that is not possible. You are not God. Salvation is through Christ alone. You don't get to become your own Christ. You don't get to save yourself on your own terms. And this is, I'm not saying that this is just some kind of like thing. This is in the chief religious scripture of the Hermetic faith, which is called the Poimandres, which is the first book of the Corpus Hermeticum. Uh, and it explicitly says that your goal is to awaken to this, to overcome your body and to become your own Christ so that you can save yourself and all of mankind with you. So why would you delay? I mean, I could find the exact passage and read it. It's very, very close to that. Yeah. And so... What we're seeing is, in a sense, when you say it's good against evil or dark against light, you're not wrong at all. This is a religious battle. And there's a reason why Christianity has to be targeted so much, which is because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. There is no other way. And you're going to humble yourself before God, and you're going to humble yourself. You don't get to save yourself. But the trans religion is 100% we're going to save ourselves. And the way that they save themselves following it turns out Foucault, who said that it's not that the body imprisons the soul, it's that the soul imprisons the body. 
trying to be, you know, oh, what's this weird postmodern sentence mean? What he's saying is that what they're going to do is they're going to change themselves and then force society to affirm them so that the social constructions around gender transform. And when that's the soul, the soul is your part of the social construction of the socialization network of society. And so they firmly believe with religious fervor that the only way that they can have salvation from the suffering that they have, the inequ- iniquities that they suffer, we could get as, as biblical in our language to copy what they're, what they're saying as we want to, is to be able to beget themselves and force society to affirm their, what they have done to themselves and thus save themselves and all of humanity. And Christianity is an absolute rebuke of this concept. And so they have to be vigorously anti-Christian. The idea that there is absolutely no true renewal outside of Christ is anathema to the idea that they must actually renew themselves and use their renewal and, and, and social enforcement to transform all of society to affirm that renewal. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's completely anathema. But it, if you are biblically minded, you'll immediately see that what this is is God versus Satan. There's no question as to what what yeah. what is meant by believing right. that you get to become your own self your own of course your own it goes savior. back to the garden it goes back to the garden of Eden that you can it's, be like God it's three and four So Jesus told us that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. One way to look at that is how you invest your money is where your values are. That's where your priorities are. That's what you care about most. And that is certainly true when you're looking at investments. The kinds of investments you make tell a story about the things that you believe in. And so that means you want the investment company that you use that's helping you make these investments to align with your values. You don't want them to be hostile uh, to what you're investing in or hostile to your values. That's why Constitution Wealth exists. It's a conservative Christian financial investment firm. They believe what we do, that when it comes to investing, personal value should play a large part. That means that who you are working with when it comes to those investments really matters. And they are going to help you create a financial plan that's based on the central principles of respecting liberty, freedom, helping people fulfill their God-given potential. I mean, this could just really make a huge difference in your life and in your investments and take away a little bit of stress when you're working with that company. You don't know if they're okay with the kind of pro-life or pro-liberty investments that you're making. You don't have to worry about that with Constitution Wealth. Just such amazing, amazing people with amazing service. You will love it. ConstitutionWealth.com slash Allie. You can schedule a free consultation, a free consultation at ConstitutionWealth.com slash Allie. ConstitutionWealth.com slash Allie. Christians also believe that it's not just transgenderism that does this. We also believe Read Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy. I always recommend that on this show to people. Uh, But she also argues that any kind of what we would call sexual immorality, promiscuity, homosexuality, abortion are all assault against the Imago Dei and are all this exchanging the God of Scripture for the God of self. I mean, you hear that just even in the mantras of the abortion lobby, my body, my choice. And I've heard it. It's that it's kind of like a perverted uh, Eucharist, whereas like Christ says, this is my body. So are abortion advocates. This is my body, whereas Christ's body um, brought us life. The sacrifice of his body brought us life. We are saying, this is my body. I will bring death unto it and those who inhabit it, um, those who are advocating for abortion. And so Christians don't believe— Do you see that the abortion is the same, by the way, is this? Go ahead, finish your thought, but I want to come back to that. Um, It is what I would say, what I argued in my book is that— When you elevate, when autonomy and authenticity become your gods, when they become your primary guides to what morality is, then you will end up justifying all kinds of atrocities. You will end up sacrificing truth and reason and the well-being of other people. 
in the name of autonomy and authenticity, autonomy and authenticity. So autonomy, having control of your own body, having responsibility can be a great thing. Authenticity, being yourself, not being a liar, not being a hypocrite, not putting up a facade, that can be a great thing. But when these are your number one priorities or your ultimate gods, then you'll sacrifice anything to quote unquote being yourself or being authentic. If you are your own God and authenticity is your highest priority, then why can't you define yourself? Why can't you identify yourself? Why can't you be whatever you want to be? What is objective truth if you are your own God? And then the same thing with autonomy. Autonomy can be good, of course, when we're talking about we don't want the government to tell us that we have to put vaccines in our body. But when uh, autonomy is your God or is your number one priority, then of course you will even sacrifice the life and well-being of a child inside your body because autonomy is number one. So I would argue that autonomy and authenticity, while they can be virtues, have to be submitted to a higher authority than yourself. And of course, I believe that higher authority is God and biblical morality. Maybe you would believe it's natural law or truth or reason or just compassion and empathy for other people whatever it is. Um, Yeah, that's what I would argue. So I don't think abortion and transgenderism are the same. Do I think that they are absolutely derived from this same satanic idea that you are your own God? Does it matter how it affects other people? Yes, I do. They they share that commonality. So that's what I mean, is that the abortion position held by the majority of the left and the, the kind of powers that be in the Democratic Party. I don't want to throw average Democrats that are low information under the bus here because I don't think they actually think about it like this, most of them. But when you start you start talking about this all the way to the moment of birth and, they, you know, absolutely, you see how the activists are. We all know how the activists are. You know, they're absolutely about it. I'm I've I'm quite quite certain that what they're actually, what this feminist position is of absolute autonomy for, uh, you know, over, over it's my body. I get to make the decision up to the moment where it's, you know, outside of my body or whatever, that this is Gnosticism, that they believe that they know what their life was supposed to be. And that's secret salvific knowledge that they've seen a glimpse of what was meant to be written in the, you know, the book of life or whatever metaphor we want to use for that. And that the idea that they were – they didn't ask to be born in a woman's body that could become pregnant even by accident. They didn't ask to be put in the position where they have to rewrite their entire life all of a sudden because of a decision they made that resulted in a pregnancy, especially if there are medical techniques that can allow them to, you know, and somewhat with with relative safety, you know, liberate, to use their word, themselves from that case. When we understand that the position that – I think there were actually three positions in the debate, not two. It's not pro-life versus pro-choice. It's actually like there's pro-life, pro-choice, and then feminist Gnosticism, which is a kind of a third, literally, you don't get to tell me what to do because I am the arbiter of my own life because I've seen what my life was supposed to be, and I get to make that decision. And when we understand that there's a third position like that, in that position, this is the, this is the same as the trans issue in its kind of one step back because it's the same Gnostic idea that you believe that you had a glimpse of what your life was actually supposed to be. And the the demiurge, which is society, doesn't get to tell you what to do with it. And of course, when I say the demiurge is society, that's the modern incarnation. It's not what they believed in, you know, the first century with Valentinius or whatever, like the Gnostic Christian cults. The demiurge has taken on this idea of the the social, the, the cultural hegemony and the powers, whether it's the bourgeois classes, whether it's the whites, whether it's the patriarchy, whatever it is, this operates as a demiurgic power that is constraining people and imprisoning people beyond their their desire. So the the Gnostic impulse is that you've been flung into this situation that you didn't ask for. Again, you didn't ask to be born a woman. You didn't ask to be born fertile. You didn't ask for the situation that, you know, by decision likely unintentionally uh, for for the way that they are, that you're going to have to rewrite the story of your life rather than believing that, you know, the story of your life contained this event uh, and now you're going to take that chapter. Uh, this is ultimately that same Gnostic entitlement that says that you get to be the ultimate arbiter of your life. And so my point when I say that, that you see how they're the same, and I, I agree with the way that you, you framed these things actually, uh, my point is that the impulse behind both is Gnostic. It's fundamentally, when you say it comes from that same satanic place, that satanic place has a name, it's Gnosticism. And that name is the, it's the same story like we already acknowledged that's in the third chapter of Genesis when the snake said, God, God hath not said. And, um, 
I think it's important for us to start to clarify. I'm not disagreeing with you in any way. I'm trying to say we should clarify our understanding of what's motivating the left. And what's motivating the left is a Gnostic impulse for liberation from what they believe is a life of imprisonment. That's why they say emancipation, liberation, constantly. A life of imprisonment that's imposed upon them by the social structures of a dominant power structure that they didn't ask to be born under. And if you actually listen to the language, you'll hear this again and again and again and again. It's very clarifying, but it also gives Christians in particular a very powerful route to ministry to help people understand this, but also to reach to them and understand why uh, the story that they're living under in their lives is actually a very dark and dangerous story and that it's not the best way to think of these things. Rather than getting caught in the same kind of circular arguments that we always end up caught in that don't move anywhere. So my my, my interest here is in, in trying to, to give people on the side of sanity the ability to have this discussion in a way, especially Christians, where they're going to be able to reach to that kind of very dark view of what it means to be a woman and a fertile woman and a pregnant woman eventually, um, and to speak to them in a way that maybe brings them back from that, you know, you get to be the ultimate arbiter of your life because you think you've seen the truth, but you don't know what's truly in store for you. You don't know what you might be missing. Um, you aren't actually God. Uh, the, I, I just, I think it's an important point for people to realize where the mentality comes from. Every time I bring it up, I get firebombed because people don't seem to want to talk about it. Uh, but I'm just trying to offer a little clarity on how the left, the hard left, the radical left mm-hmm. actually thinks about the issue. They were flung into a woman's body beyond their desire, beyond their choosing. And now they're trapped in a prison of their fertility. And when you realize that that's their mentality, then you can talk to them where their mentality is and start to, to pull them away from that very poisonous way of thinking. It informs so much of the, the articulations that feminism has about what a woman's life should be like and why you know they should you know favor career over family and why families are actually toxic. So much of it unravels when you realize that it all boils down to this Gnostic belief that they've been imprisoned in a woman's body that they didn't ask for. So if it sounded like that conversation ended kind of abruptly, that's because, remember, this was actually the first part of a long conversation that James and I had. And the second part of that conversation, we actually played first because it had to do with news stories that were circulated in the news cycle last week. So go back and listen to last Wednesday's episode if you are wondering what the second part of this conversation uh, sounded like. So I just wanted to provide you with some clarity there. Just a reminder, just a reminder, guys, we've got awesome merch. I'm wearing some of my merch right now. I think the version that's being sold doesn't have the with ABS. It just has the little relatable on it. Mother's Day is coming up, guys. It's coming up, Relata Bros. Your Relata Gals, your Relata Bells, they want some merch. We've got amazing merch. Look, I've even got my little hat right here. Isn't it cute? It's a corduroy hat. Um, so go to AllieMerch.com. Yeah, just AllieMerch.com. I almost forgot my own link. AllieMerch.com. You can use code Allie10 for 10% off. That's AllieMerch.com. All right. I will see you back here tomorrow. Mm-hmm.